As you know, we, uh, if you've been here for any amount of time for the last couple of weeks, we are in the book of Habakkuk. And today I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different. Um, in fact, here's my promise to you. At some point today, you are going to think, what's this have to do with Habakkuk? Or where's he going with this? I promise you, that thought is going to cross your head. Okay? But here's what I want to do. Most of you, probably, if you were to take your Bible and hold it like this, most of your Bibles would not fall open to the book of Habakkuk, or any of the minor prophets for that matter. It's an area that we kind of like to avoid in the Bible. Um, so what we like to do with this is a lot of our little fortune cookie-isms that we have in Christianity come from one-liners that we take out of the minor prophets or the prophets. Because we don't know what to do with it. So that, that looks good. Habakkuk has three of those. Um, we covered one of those last week, right? Uh, if um, I'm getting ready to do a great thing amongst your, among you, so great that if I were to tell you about it, you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't believe it. And a lot of people, when they hear that text, or they've heard it, whether it's at a youth camp or at a conference, it's usually phrased in such a way that God is going to do something amazing through your life. But really what that text means is, I'm getting ready to destroy my people. Not really a text you want to put on t-shirts or use as a banner. Today we run into two of those. We'll get to those later. But what I want to do, and I, I don't, if, if this has already been done, I'm sorry, it'll be redundant. Um, I don't think it has from what I've been told. I want to take Habakkuk as this, this book that's kind of floating up here. And I want to pull it back down into its historical context. And so we're going to have kind of a, a, a long history, if you will. And we're going to land back in Habakkuk. Um, and we will do extremely short summaries of the first two weeks, and then we will pick up on the three verses, four verses that we are covering today. Okay? Does that work? Let me pray, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that um, all of your scripture is inspired, and uh, we thank you for the grace you've given us as we travel through these books that are oftentimes neglected. Um, and we just ask you for the grace to give us ears to hear what you would have us to hear Eyes to see what you would have us to see and a heart to know what you would have us to know. Father, we love you. We love your scripture. We love your voice to us. I thank you for these people. I thank you that we get to be your people here in this great city that you've placed us in. Father, we love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to go, just for a short period, we're going to go all the way back to Noah, which Hollywood's getting ready to do for us, so I don't need to spend much time on it. But we're going to go all the way back to Noah, right? And at this time... Um, the world is, according to Scripture, it is, it is extremely wicked. It is extremely evil. And so God says, God starts using language like, I regret that I made mankind. You've reached a bad point when God regrets something he's done, especially if he knows all things. And so he decides he is going to destroy this local group of humanity through this great flood. But he calls to himself Noah and his, and his family. And he's going to save them, and he puts them in an ark with some, with some animals, and he's going to kind of start all over, okay? The flood comes, a lot of people die, the ark lands. Noah comes out, and God makes a covenant with him. Basically the same covenant he makes back with Adam. Basically the same covenant he's going to make with Abraham, and then again with David. In short, he said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make for myself a people that is going to live for my glory and who will live under this, and I'm paraphrasing, 
who will live under and within this realm called shalom. This idea where everything, God's relationship with man, man's relationship with himself, man's relationship with the rest of humanity, man's relationship with creation, lives in complete harmony. And I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. And God kind of sets up as we move on. Now we're going to jump pretty, pretty far and pretty fast. God begins to rule as these people begin to form through Abraham when he calls out Abraham. He begins to form these people and he leads them through rather than a, a central leadership base, he leads them through these high priests, these prophets, these judges, and then himself as king. Ultimately, God is king. Now, that doesn't mean everything was going great, right? All you have to do is read the book of Judges to find out very, very quickly that the things weren't always the best. But some way through this, God was leading his people to be a people that chased after, that was committed to God's character, God's revealed will, and God's law. At this time, the law wasn't written down. But he was developing for himself a people who would ultimately be his image to the rest of the world, who chased after his character, his will, and his law. Now, let's jump from the time of Noah to the time of Saul, which is about a thousand years. The people have not had a king. God has been their king. And they start complaining. They start calling upon God. They start demanding that God, we want an earthly, tangible, fleshly king. Anybody remember what their great motive was for having a king? They just wanted to be like everyone else. Not even a good motive. In other words, uh, God, we want to be like the rest of these other nations that worship idols. Another way to say that is, God, you haven't done a very good job at being king. And we would like another one. Not to lead us to you, but so we can be like everybody else. Never a good motive in life. So God, he even takes his prophet Samuel and he warns his people, if, if I give you a king, this is what's going to happen. This is how this king is going to treat you. He's going to enslave you. You are going to be... Your lives are basically belittled for him. Now, here's what's sad about this whole thing. If you read in Scripture, the little bit we get about Saul before he comes king, he's a pretty legit dude. I mean, he's got his things like we all do. But he's, he's a pretty legit dude. And then he becomes king, and power does what power does. And it, and it corrupts. And he begins to do exactly what Samuel said he would do. And then he does what all humans do. He dies. God takes him out. And he anoints for himself David. Right? And David is really known for three things. Okay? Usually, in, in, uh, depending on your audience, if you, if you think of David, you also immediately think of Bathsheba. Right? David is a man who is known for great sin. But he is also a man, at the same time, who has this title, a man after God's own heart. Now what's interesting is his sin is no greater than Saul's. It's just that his repentance was. He was a man who walked in repentance. And, if you, and you know this by reading the Psalms. He was a man who was, I mean, for most people, for most, from what I understand, worship leaders, he's the pinnacle. I mean, read his writings. 
This man knew what it meant to worship God. He knew what it meant. And again, you can get this just from reading the Psalms. He knew what it meant to chase after the will, the character, and the law of God. He knew this. And this is what he began to do. He began to lead Israel to be these people who are chasing after the character and the law of God. The other thing David is known as is a warrior king. He was pretty violent. And at one point, towards the end of his, his reign, he asked God, due to his heart of worship, he asked God, can I build for you a temple? Now here's what I know, God. You can't. You're too big. You're not going to live in this temple. Heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. But can I build for you a temple that all the nations will be able to come and worship you through? Can I do that? And God answers this man after his own heart with a big fat no. And he says, here's why. Because you have blood on your hands. Because your reign has been in violence. In other words, my kingdom will not advance. My kingdom will not be known as a kingdom that is built on violence. And so though you have walked greatly in repentance, no, you cannot build. You cannot build this temple. But here's what I'll do for you. Solomon can, your son. Your son will sit on the throne and he will build this temple. David did what Saul did before him and he dies and Solomon comes to power and Solomon does exactly this. He builds this temple. In fact, Israel for the first time in its history begins to take on the tangible form of this this reign of shalom that the Jews had longed for. They're not a violent place, but they're a place of peace. Solomon has influenced the nations enough that they start coming to Israel to worship God through the temple. But, because Solomon's not a perfect king and he's flesh, the power and the wealth of the world begin to call to him, as a siren does, in a way that he can't deny. And he chases after it. And as he begins to chase after it, the fault lines within the kingdom begin to move. And Solomon, like David and like Saul before him, dies. Except this time it's not so clear who should take the throne. In fact, there becomes what would almost be the equivalent of a civil war that begins to happen in, in Israel. And you have a group of people who are saying, we should not worship God from Jerusalem, we should worship God from Samaria. And you have another group saying, no, Jerusalem is the true capital, and the line of David needs to stay on the throne. Solomon's son needs to stay on the throne. So the nation splits. We went over a little bit of this when we were going through the book of Jonah. Uh, so the nation splits, and we now have the northern kingdom that is made up of, the ten, of ten tribes of Israel, and we have the southern kingdom made up of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. From the northern kingdom, we will worship God from the capital of Samaria, and from the southern kingdom, we will worship God from Jerusalem, and it is ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Solomon didn't do a good job at raising Rehoboam. So the nation kind of starts its downward movement. Judah does. All the while, Israel, the northern kingdom to the north, the bigger kingdom, the more powerful kingdom, mistakes their size and the little bit of power that they have in the world as God's grace or God's mercy on them. And so they begin to live in pride and they begin to allow idolatry to seep its way in and they begin to deny things or walk away things like purity and holiness and justice. In other words, 
the kingdom no longer looks like this picture of shalom that Solomon had built. And God begins to raise up prophets, and these prophets go to Israel proper, which is the northern kingdom, and he says, if you continue down this path, raise up the Assyrian army. One of those prophets was Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. I'm going to raise up the Assyrian army, and they are going to destroy you. And this is what happens. The Assyrian army comes in, destroys Israel, not just like destroys them until later, but them out. Throughout the rest of history, we, have, we don't know of the ten tribes of Israel. They're gone. In fact, what's interesting, if you just, this is for free, as if the rest of it wasn't. But if you jump to the New Testament, uh, we have these, uh, these half-bloods, if you will, the Samaritans that the, the Jews look down on. Well, they're, they're a combination of the, the, north, the northern kingdom and, and other races. Obliterates them, wipes them out. And so what's left is the southern kingdom of Judah. And Judah, even though they had front row seats to the destruction of their brothers, they begin to take the fact that they got to survive that as God's approval on them. Now, we're going to jump a few kings ahead. We land at the king Manasseh. Manasseh was a pretty wicked king. In fact, he began to, uh, rather than turn a blind eye to the idolatry, the injustice that was running through Judah, he began to allow it willingly. In fact, at this point, the temple has now become kind of like the old house on the corner. It's worn down. It's rusty. There's cobwebs. Nobody uses it. It's an eyesore. It's, to be frank, it's a middle finger to God. It would have been better if they would have torn it down. Then Manasseh dies and his son Amon takes power. And he doesn't just allow it. He begins to institute it. He begins to set up temples. He begins to promote idolatry. He begins to promote injustice. He's in favor of all this. He's so wicked that the wicked people of Judah can't take it, and two years later into his rulership, they assassinate him. And his son, you all might have heard of him, Josiah, takes the throne at the age of eight. Anybody have an eight-year-old? Yeah. I'm thinking it only gets worse from there. Right? But, and, we, and maybe this is why Scripture leaves all this detail out. But, but at the age of 16, give or take, for some reason, Josiah's heart and Josiah's mind is turned towards God. He doesn't know much about this God because what should have been known about him has been lost. It's been trampled. It's been forgotten. It's been, uh, it's been a good mythology, if you will. But he begins to pray and he begins to seek and he begins to chase after God the best way he knows how. And he begins, unlike the kings before him, he begins to work with the high priests, prophet. The main prophet he worked with was a guy by the name of Jeremiah. And they begin to work together for God's glory, for the good of the southern kingdom. They decide, they, so they start to pass all these reforms, basically, to turn the people's heart, turn the people's mind back to God. One of those reforms being is they're going to reestablish temple worship. They're going to, they're going to I don't know, reconstruct 
the temple. They're going to clean it out. They're going to do what they need to do to make the temple the place of worship, the place of glory that it was supposed to be. Upon doing this, they find this scroll. They unroll it. They begin to read it. And they begin to weep. It's their only response. Many people believe that what this scroll is, is at that point what would be today our Pentateuch or our Torah. And they begin to weep. And I think the reason they begin to weep is they begin to get a clear picture God's character, God's will, and God's law for his people are. But not only that, we get a picture of how far they are from that. And they begin to weep. And they don't know what to do with that except to call all the people to them. Let's just, let's read it to them also. No interpretation, no exegeting, no great sermon. Let's just read it. This is not unlike the picture we get of Nehemiah and Ezra when Ezra reads to the people after the Babylonian exile. The people do the same thing. They begin to weep. And so Josiah does what Josiah knows how to do. And he just says, let's, let's we read about a Passover, so he reinstitutes the, the Passover. And, and they become a people. And so he, he begins to lead his people as a people who will now chase after, who will commit to, who will obsess over the law, the character, and the will of God. We are now kind of full circle. We are now getting a renewed picture of what it was that Solomon was starting to do. At this time in history, there are three, I told you, you're going to be like, what does this have to do with Habakkuk? At this time in history, there are three major world powers. Okay? Judah is not one of them. Judah is like a neighborhood compared to Texas, compared to these, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it, there's no threat to anybody. But the three is the Syrian Empire, but they're on their way out. They're the most powerful, they're the largest, but they're on their way out. The fault lines have already started to shake. You have the Egyptian Empire to the south, ruled by uh, Pharaoh Necho II, also kind of on their way out. Not a great threat. But then you have the Babylonian Empire, ran by these people called the Chaldeans. And they're making waves. Because they take violence and injustice to a whole new level. In fact, last week in our reading, what you read was when God talks about that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, he doesn't use the phrase injustice. He says their form of justice. So they've established what it means for them to rule. And anybody who is not like them, they're going to force into that. They're going to enslave and make them just like themselves. And their power is only strengthening through violence and enslavement. Nico, I guess, texts Josiah and says, hey, dude, I need to come through your land with my army. I'm going to go meet the Assyrians. We don't know why. We don't know if he was wanting to fight them to take over. We don't, truce, maybe let's, let's, let's create an alliance to come against that. We don't know why. We just know he's on his way up. And Josiah has just done all this work to bring Israel back to the place where they're denying the idols, where they're chasing after God's law, God's will, and God's character. And so he tells Nico, uh, nope, it's not going to happen. Nico responds back and says, I wasn't really asking for permission. I was trying to be polite. You can't really stop me from doing this. You're Judah. And so Nico marches on with his army. Josiah, I guess, I don't know, because he, he turned the nation around. He thinks he's big stuff, and he decides, we'll go to battle with Egypt. And so he does this. He calls his army together. 
And Josiah does what I think any good leader would do. Rather than leading the battle from a distant place and calling the shots, he suits up. And he dresses like a soldier. And he gets in the trenches. And this great man of God, who started these great reforms, dies in battle along with every single reform he set up. And Nico does exactly what Nico wants to do and marches through and steps on Judah like it's nothing more than a bug. Josiah's son, who does not follow after Josiah, but his grandfather Amon, Jeroboam, takes the throne. And he immediately squelches all of the reforms and he begins to lead Judah back to the way of his grandfather and his great-grandfather. Nico, here's what's funny, I think. Nico on his way back, just to make sure they're not acting like big shots or they think they can tell Egypt what to do, plucks Jeroboam off the throne, turns him into a slave, takes him back to Egypt, which is where Jeroboam will die. And then he puts Jerichoam on the throne. Great names. Um, Puts him on the throne, and he is even worse than his brother. And he will be the king who goes down in history as the man who single-handedly leads Judah into its demise against the Babylonians. And this, this is where the very, very small voice of Habakkuk appears. In the midst of this idolatry, in the midst of this injustice, in the midst of this violence, this little prophet, who we've never heard about before, we will never hear about again, decides it's time to speak. In the first week, in the book of Habakkuk, he basically complains to God, right? He comes before God and he says, I know your history. I know your vision of shalom, I'm paraphrasing. This sort of injustice, this sort of, inv- this sort of violence, this sort of inequality, it, it doesn't work with your vision of how things should be. His complaint was not against Babylon. It was not about Egypt. It was not against Assyria. It was about his own house. Jesus talks about this. A prophet is someone who is oftentimes loved when they're speaking outside of their house, but when they turn their attention to their own house, all of a sudden they're angry or delusional or what have you. And this is what Habakkuk does. Maybe this is why we don't hear of him again. And after he complains to God... He stands and he waits and he listens. And God replies and he says, oh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something so great and so amazing it would blow your mind. And this is what I think. This is my take on him saying, I'm going to send the Babylonians in. It's not so much punishment like we think of punishment. But you've got to remember, Judah is accepting injustice, right? They're They're accepting violence. They're living with it. They're living with inequality. They're promoting it. They're taking God's name in vain because they still claim to be his people. So they're doing it as if they're doing it with God's approval. I think God looks at them and says, you want to live with injustice? You want to live with inequality? Okay, we'll do this. I'll bring a people in who will give you exactly what you want. And isn't, isn't that kind of the way of our culture? We want our free will. We want our right to do what we want to do, but we want salvation from the consequences of it. And unfortunately, in God's economy, it just doesn't work that way. He says, okay, okay, I'll give you exactly what you want. And 
Habakkuk's response is, time out. God, you're, from, you're the God from, of old. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're wanting to do away with idolatry, how in the world are you going to send in a nation who is going to make idolatry permanent? If you want to do away with injustice and inequality, how are you going to bring in a nation who's going to punish us by making injustice the way things are? How are you going to how are you going to do this to us? So he questions God again, and I think where you guys left off last week is Habakkuk's kind of bowed up, and he's like, I'm going to take my stance on my post, and I'm going to wait for God to respond to that one. And so God does respond. And he responds, and we're only going to go through four verses today. With two, two lines that are often taken way out of context. I will summarize what those lines are, and then I'm going to read from a different translation to kind of get our head out of that. A translation that I think actually words this, this specific uh, uh, phrase, if you will, a little better. But one of those is, we've all heard this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, we've heard it in different uh, ways, but write the vision down and run with it. Now, usually the way we've heard that is at some leadership conference, or some epiphany that God's going to give you, some great calling that God is going to give you. And so we say, you just got to write that vision down, and you got to run with it. In other words, you got to work with everything you've got to accomplish that vision. Except that's not what God is saying at all. Now, here's what I am saying. Writing a vision down that you think you might have is not a bad idea. But you can't blame it on this text. Because that's not what God is saying at all. In fact, I think if that's what God was saying, it would be counterintuitive to who he wants us to be as a people. Because what happens so often, especially in our world, in the West, is when we get a vision or calling, which is a whole other sermon I could spend time on, we often chase after that at the expense of God's character, God's revealed will, and God's law. As if to say, thanks God, we Heisman him and do it our way. Right? Because this is what God has called me to do. But he's already revealed to us what his will is. And I don't know about you, but anybody here got loving your neighbor as yourself down perfect? Anybody? Not me. Anybody have... Loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Anybody got that one down perfect? Not me. So why in the world would God's goal be to give us something that would allow us to justify ignoring his very character, his very law, and his very will, all for the sake of the autonomous call? I don't think that's what he does. In fact, and this is for free and we'll jump back into the text. I think if we look through the scriptures, this big call that we're all looking for, I think that call just happens as we begin to commit ourselves, be obsessed with, focus on, run after God's character, God's law, and God's will. 
I think God, I trust God enough that he will get us where he wants us to be if we focus on what's already been revealed to us in the scriptures. So let's go ahead and pick up. Let's see if maybe you can tell the difference in the whole leadership thought behind take the vision and write it down and run and what God might actually be saying. Picking up in verse two, the Lord responded, write down this message, record it legibly on tablets so the one who announces it may read it easily for the message is a witness to what is decreed. It gives reliable testimony about how matters will turn out. In other words, it's not about a vision. It's not so far, we already know this. It's not a vision about what you're going to do in life. It's a vision about what God is going to do. Even if the message is not fulfilled right away, wait patiently, for it will certainly come to pass. It will not arrive late. Hit pause. So here's what that text means, the whole write the vision down, which if we keep it in context, I don't think it's one we would claim over our leadership summits, over our own personal lives. Because what God is saying is things are getting ready to get so bad. Things are getting ready to get so dark that you're going to hit a point where you are going to be tempted to believe that I don't even exist. You're going to be tempted to think that I am for the Babylonians and I have turned my back on you. You're going to be tempted to think that I am through with Judah, that I am breaking my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I am breaking my promise to David. That's how bad things are getting ready to get. And they're not going to get bad for a short amount of time. They're going to get bad for a long time. So long that you're going to be tempted to think that which is written down is mythology. It's going to get so bad and I'm going to feel so absent that the only thing you will have to hold on to is what I'm getting ready to say. And so you need to write this down. Because when you're tempted with all of that, when the goosebumps leave you, the only thing you're going to have to hold on to, the only thing you're going to refer to, the only thing you're going to be able to go back to is this. We'll find out next week what the this is. And then he goes on. Verse 4. Uplifting, huh? Look, the one whose desires are not upright will faint from exhaustion. But the person of integrity, also translated righteousness, will live because of faithfulness. The verse probably in your, in your Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that is a verse that is repeated two or three times by Paul. It's repeated in the book of Hebrews. It's obviously, even in scriptures, the motto for the Christian life, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's the reason I wanted to use a different text for that. is because, first of all, the better translation for faith is faithfulness. And you know as well as I do, if you look at the word faith and faithfulness, they bring up a different sort of imagination, especially in the West. Because faith is easy believism, right? That's not what it meant in scriptures, okay? I'm not saying that's what the rest of the scriptures mean when they use the word faith, but oftentimes that's what it means for us. We put our faith in Jesus because we can quote a few things. We've, we've, we've gone down to some altar. We show up to church two out of four times a month. We give. We have faith. We believe. 
But when Scripture talks about faith, what it means is a faith that works. Right? Jesus says this. James says this. And I think that's why the word faithfulness is better. And here's, here's all Habakkuk is saying in all of this. Basically, you can tell the difference between the person who puts their faith in me and the person who doesn't. Because the person who doesn't, when things look very dim, when things look very dark, when it looks like I am very absent, that person, no matter what they quote, no matter what they say, that person begins to take circumstances into their own hands. And they begin to try to figure it out on their own. They begin to do it their way. And the righteous person is a person that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how far it feels that God is, is a person who is faithful anyway. He's faithful to the will, the revealed will, the character, and the law of God. And he's telling Habakkuk specifically, those are the two people that are going to be left after this. And some aren't going to make it. Some aren't going to make it. Because they're going to try to take control of this. They're going to try to do it their way. But there are going to be a few that do. And we know this. We know this, right? From the book of of Nehemiah, from Ezra. We know there are some that make it. And here's why. It's not because they had some great calling. It's not because they took control of the situation. It's because they were faithful. Not to some amazing vision. But they were simply faithful to the will, the law, and the God, even when it didn't make sense. And I think, I think today that's, that's the simple message. Not uplifting. But I think it's when the marriage looks like it's on the rocks and it's on its way to that finish line, Habakkuk would say, be faithful anyway. When the job security is gone and you have no idea how you're going to handle the life that you have created, Habakkuk would say, be faithful anyway. When the whole family situation is a mess and it is out of your hands to control, Habakkuk would say, be faithful anyway. And I think the reason, that sounds kind of harsh. I mean, you're not going to fix it. I think the reason God can tell Habakkuk and why God would tell us, be faithful anyway, is because at the end of the day, he's the one who's able. He's the one who will make his shalom real in our lives. He's the one who will bring about his kingdom. He's the one who will make peace possible in a very unpeaceful situation. And I think oftentimes we get in the way of that when we try to control and fix and make. And God is saying, that's my job. I'm going to do it. You, your job, just be faithful anyway, no matter what it looks like. Let's pray.